Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscriber, Konstantinos, for his support and all my other Patreon subscribers for their continued support. This podcast would struggle to continue without them, and my Patreon page is quickly becoming a great place to hang out and talk about the world of conducting. There'll be more about my Patreon page later on in this episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with a British conductor whose career has really grown over the last few years. He studied with Sir Roger Norrington and has specialised in historically informed performance, while also becoming an expert in conducting orchestras live to film in concert. It's a pleasure to welcome Ben Palmer. Ben, lovely to see you and to chat to you. How are you? I'm really well, Mike. Great to see you. How are you doing? I'm very good. Uh, It feels like the start of a new year and hopefully things gradually return to some sort of normality. Whatever normality becomes, who knows? Yeah, I think we may have all forgotten what normal normal feels like by now. Exactly, exactly. Um, I've done my usual thing. I've done some homework and I've done some digging. Um, But some of it is off the top of my head. And I seem to remember that, you know, you were a trumpet player. Um, Trumpet was your instrument. Well... How did music first come into your life? Musical family uh, or not? Um, quite a lot of my family are musical, but nobody uh, was foolish enough to do it for a living. <laughs> yeah. Um, my, I think my earliest kind of musical memory is uh, watching and listening to musicals. So things like Oliver and uh, The Sound of Music. And um, I was born in Denmark and then lived in France uh, sorry, uh, born in Denmark and then Amsterdam and France. So mm. moved to the UK when I was um, eight and a half. Um, so we used to have quite a lot of long car journeys <laughs> uh, to go and kind of visit grandparents and things. Uh, and we used to have the tapes of these musicals and we used to sing them, sing along to them and just know all of the words to absolutely everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think when I was seven... Um, I decided that I wanted to play the trumpet. My dad um, sings and uh, used to play the horn. So I think that was probably the kind of catalyst for that. Um, And so we found a a flugelhorn at a kind of... um, a kind of flea market thing, like really old, old, old French flea horn. Um, and we found a, a trumpet teacher who was called Monsieur Oldman. Um, and uh, he played the trumpet and he arrived on a motorbike, which was when, when I was, well, sorry, I was seven years old. That was yeah. pr- pretty much, you know, like having, having a visit from God. Um, <laughs> so that, so that, so that was pretty cool. And yeah, so I kind of started playing the trumpet a bit and I enjoyed it and it was, you know, it was fun, but it was never anything particularly serious. Yeah. Um, and I did that did that through school. And then when I was, I think, 15, um, I finally did my grade eight. So, you know, sort of not yes. particularly kind of high achieving um, instrumentalist or anything, but did my grade eight. And that was finally the, the, uh, the time that my parents thought it would be OK to buy me, buy me a new trumpet. <laughs> and suddenly, so suddenly I got this this new instrument. And um, all the things that I'd been sort of really struggling with uh, were suddenly much, much easier. And I wanted to then go back and do my grade eight again. Yeah. Um, but I, I then sort of got slightly, um, 
well, really totally obsessed with it and, you know, literally played every day for a year and used to take a mouthpiece on holiday with me and all this kind of thing. And it was at that time, I think, that I got a place in my county youth orchestra, Suffolk Youth Orchestra. And in our first course, which I guess must have, must have been the Easter course, I think when I was 15 years old, I think, um, we played a couple of movements of Chike 5. Mm. And I distinctly remember not sleeping properly for kind of two or three nights after that because it was it was just the most exciting thing I had ever experienced yeah, yeah. and it was it was like a kind of um switch being flicked and that and that was it and I was just hooked on music and and so from that from that moment onwards um before that I'd wanted to be a cartoonist um but but from that moment it was that was kind of it music music for me all the way really. so who was conducting the Suffolk County Youth Orchestra way back yeah, when it's a fantastic fantastic guy um called philip shaw um, mm. who only retired a couple of years ago and um i mean i know this is a sort of question that that comes up he he was the first person that i really sort of noticed as being a conductor and yeah. i mean i think you know sort of technically i've definitely played for for sort of better people but he had this amazing way of just somehow bringing I don't know, 90 kids together in a way that just produced these incredible performances. And, and he said things in rehearsals that still pop into my mind mm. on a kind of weekly basis. Um, you know, I remember once we were playing, uh, what was it, Rachmaninoff Second Symphony and the exposition repeat, you know, there's that little do-dee-dum, do-dee-dum, and the do-da-dee-dum, the little rubato. Yes. And... A couple of people on the repeat weren't sort of really watching and just sort of did did what he'd done the first time. And he said, when I repeat myself, it means something. <laughs> when I repeat myself, it means something. When I repeat myself, it means... And, and yeah. so he didn't, he wasn't explaining what he did, he just used it as an example. And, and it just kind of blew everyone's minds. Mm. Um, and, and from that moment on, any time that I've done an exposition repeat, I've sort of thought about whether it might be nice to say something different the second time. You know, just loads yes. and loads and loads of things like that. Um, and he was just amazing. He was really inspiring. And um, obviously, you know, as, as you know, the sort of relationship between principal trumpet and conductor and conductor is a really important one. <laughs> and yeah. as I sort of gradually, <laughs> gradually made my, made my way up through the ranks from kind of third, third trumpet to principal trumpet for my last few years, um, I learned a huge amount from him and, you know, really, really big influence on, on my life musically and, and as a conductor. Well, it sounds like we were both lucky in the fact that my county thought she conducted when I joined when I was 15 uh, and stayed till I was 20 um, was a guy called Alan Vincent. And again, you know, he was just, uh, he was a guy who, who we all looked up to and respected and said amazing things. And we did amazing concerts. I know some youth orchestras don't always have that luck. They found you somebody who's, who's in it for all of the right reasons, who might not be, you know, a technician like a Marzell or a Kleiber or whoever, but who just gets it, gets the job done and it enthuses people. You know, I remember playing Heldenlade when I was 15 years old and, and you know, Marla too were later on and Belshazzar's and, and Elgar too and, and just amazing concerts. And, and you look back and you thank these people. I have seen him since, you know, um, and, and thanked him greatly for it. But, yeah, we were lucky, really, weren't we, to have a youth orchestra. I mean, some counties don't have them now. Uh, absolutely. And, I mean, the, the other thing that, you know, to which I'm really, really grateful to, to, to Philip and the, and the youth orchestra for was that it was really the first time I fell in love with 
music that didn't just have really awesome trumpet parts. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, I, um, I remember, um, you know, we were doing the Barber Violin Concerto, which actually, of course, actually does also have awesome trumpet parts. But It's got a bloody you know, horrible just, bit just, for the trumpet as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Absolutely, but um, yeah, luckily I was playing second, so just, um, <laughs> it's, the, it's that fantastic bit in the last movement, and then the second trumpet muted goes, bip bop. Yeah. Um, but um, I just remember listening to that oboe solo at the beginning of the second yeah. movement and just not believing that anything could be so beautiful, you know, because that's mm. the thing is when you sort of come come to it a little bit later in life, you're you're kind of a little bit perhaps behind some of these kids who've you know, been playing in orchestras since they were nothing years old and and know all the music. So there was definitely some catching up to do. I think there's also, I've realised since I stopped playing, uh, which will be eight years in July uh, this year, that actually the violin was my, I don't know, my way into orchestras, but it was actually orchestras I loved. I was never really a big fan of Paganini and Wienowski and Sarazati or any of that rubbish. Um, and, you know, playing the violin parts while some were much more interesting than others, frankly, often I couldn't care if I loved the music. You know, um, you know, most violins complain about Bruckner because it's endless tremolo. I loved playing Bruckner. Tre tremolo, bad back or not, I love the music. So to me, I've realised, you know, actually it was just my way. I, I could have been good enough at any other instrument. It was the orchestra I wanted to do, not play the violin, if you know what I mean. I know, I know exactly what you mean. Um, I was actually I was just saying to couple of colleagues a couple of days ago um because we were talking about my uh my uh my dark past as the as a trumpet player in, in another life and I, I was saying to them that um I'm fairly certain that if I was as a trumpet player sitting in my orchestra now that I was conducting I would hate myself I was really by the time I was I guess kind of 18 19 when I was kind of principal of the youth orchestra you know really kind of gobby the sort of person who put their hand up and asked the conductor actually if the great gate of Kiev could move on a little bit because we're all dying here <laughs> and um yeah. you know just just um definite um opinions about how the music should go and and um absolutely no shame about um expressing them so mm -hmm. um yeah I, I I think it was definitely playing in orchestras that that made me um I used to be a, a, a bit too lazy to to count bars rest so I used to bring miniature scores in and and follow them in my bars rest which and you know I was also at, at university um started studying as a composer so it was it was those things that sort of made me interested in in understanding a little bit about how the orchestra worked and was put together mm. and I think it's it's it was that sort of seeing it from both sides of of being a composer and, and an orchestral player that made me feel, you know, feel as if I have quite strong opinions about how I felt the music ought to go. So I think it was probably heading in the direction of conducting anyway from, from mm. that, really. University was Birmingham. I have a feeling yeah. we met. Um... We did, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yes. um, I think I think um, Suzanne came to you for a lesson or something, or I can't remember, but I, I, I remember absolutely. Yeah. That's right, yes. Um, and you you did um, your degree in music and also stayed on and did an MPhil in composition. Did you at any stage during your, well, I'm guessing um, five or six years at, at Birmingham University, yeah. start conducting and um, even have any lessons in conducting? When did conducting really start? Because so far it hasn't yet. Yeah, I, I remember, because I was thinking about this, because I knew it asked. I, I distinctly remember at school once taking a string orchestra rehearsal for about five minutes. Um, 
and I think that was the first and only time uh, at, at that sort of age. Yeah. When I was at university, I think it was at the end of my second year, I think I applied, um, you know, I'd sort of auditioned to, to conduct some of the university ensembles and was given the wind band. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, and, and it just sort of started from there. And, I, you know, then in my third year, I did the Summer Festival Opera. So we did Marriage of Figaro and uh, took the orchestra on tour uh and uh, yeah did that a couple of times and you know started doing i think the first symphony i conducted was marla one you know all these sort of oh. very over ambitious ambitious things that <laughs> um young conductors just go great let's do that yeah um um in in the adrian bolt hall yeah i mean it was i was extremely extremely lucky to have lots of opportunities at birmingham to do lots of playing lots of composing and then once i sort of started getting a bit hooked on it because it was actually it was that it was around that time I guess after my undergrad so I guess when I was um 22 or so I basically just one day totally lost my nerve playing the trumpet I was right. about to go on stage and do um uh first trumpet in Bartok Concerto for Orchestra and I just thought I can't do this um so I grabbed a mate to come on with me and bump um yeah. and, and sort of let him do some of the kind of scary bits um and, and that was just sort of it. And it was really downhill from then on. I just really totally fell out of love with playing the trumpet. And I, it was at that time I was doing, I was, um, when I was a postgrad, I, I helped out a bit with the undergrad composition teaching. Mm. Um, and so we used to be given these uh, undergrad student pieces that were literally still warm from the printer, <laughs> um, you know, loose, loose, loose sheets uh, yeah. that had just, that had just been printed out. And we used to, you know, rehearse those and, and play them through and record them. And those, so those were kind of really my first, my first steps as a conductor. And I think I realized at, at that moment that in comparison to playing the, the trumpet, conducting was much, much, much less scary because you don't make any noise. Mm. And basically, if you've, if you've done your homework and you're prepared and you know what you're doing, um, or, you know, hopefully in the case of these student pieces where you just got given the piece and had to just conduct it uh, at first sight, if you could read it quickly enough and absorb it and, yeah. and kind of get 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 to the nuts and bolts of the piece quickly, um, that was much less terrifying. So I think I fell very deeply in love with conducting because I knew that I just didn't really have the temperament to be a trumpet player professionally. So still no lessons. And the next thing I read is um, or, or is Covent Garden Symphonia in 07 that you founded there. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, um, I, when I was uh, at Birmingham in my third year, um, my, I, did a, I did a final recital on the trumpet and yeah. uh, I, I took composition. And yeah. there was a, an, a sort of um, a Birmingham Contemporary Music Group was on ensemble in association with the university. So we, we got our third year student pieces played through yeah. uh, by, by, the, by the BCMG. Um, and the workshop that year was conducted by James McMillan. So that was fantastic. And I was lucky enough that my piece was chosen to sort of win the prize and be played in a BCMG concert. Um, and so that was then the sort of next academic year in Diego Masson. Um, came to conduct that concert and I uh, sort of just rather cheekily asked if he might come and 
watched me take a rehearsal of the university new music ensemble which he very kindly did he got in a cab <laughs> came all the way to the university and watched me and then um told told me what he thought afterwards and he said, hey, you should come and do my course at Darlington. <laughs> um, uh, and and by, by, by which point, I think the, the deadline for applying had already passed, but I yeah. sort of sent an application anyway and um, was, was given a place. And so I did that in 2004 and five and six. Yeah. So that was, I think, three, three weeks um, in the summer with um, an extremely good orchestra of, you know, very, very high level amateurs and sort of pros basically mm. having a sort of jolly busman's holiday uh, thing. And uh, I think there was usually six or seven of us on the course. And I think the orchestra was there something like nine to five for six days a week. So on that mm. first, that first Artington course in 2004, I did more conducting in those three weeks than I'd done in my entire life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it was just the most amazing thing with Diego because he, he was very much not the sort of teacher who would say do it like this he'd say you you what you did here that didn't work that was a bit shit don't do that don't <laughs> don't um don't do what i do that would also be shit you, you have to do your own thing but don't do what you did that wasn't clear you know he was just really <laughs> yeah. he was really good at kind of helping you find your own way um but not being prescriptive about about yeah. what to do and and the things that i'm really grateful to him for the thing that he was really really good about was always getting in and out of formatas and upbeats and things and you know starting up if you've stuck you know something's on a second beat um mm. you know mm. wh where where the baton should be to to approach any any kind of new section um it, they're the things course, that we, they're the things that we when we first start you can feel that your arms are in the wrong place or and you feel well how do i go from here to there how do i get out of this bar you know yeah you, you haven't realized that you've got to prepare it in the first place you know it's like playing a you know a, a shot in, in in a cricket match you know if your feet are in the wrong position there's no way you can play the sweep shot you know you, you're just going to fall over and it's exactly the same with with conducting absolutely i think that's that's the thing is that he he was very as i've said you know very good about sort of letting us find our own way but there were also some and he was also very big on making sure that we didn't kind of choreograph our movements and just do the same thing you know yes. pre-plan your moves but there were essentially he taught us that there are some rules that in some places you need to do this particular thing otherwise your gestures will not be understood yes um and that was absolutely amazing i'm so so grateful to him it was really and you know we did amazing repertoire and we did an opera every year um and as i say yeah it was it was it was a little bit like a sort of um you know service and mot for your for your <laughs> conducting yeah. each each year um so that was my, my that was my sort of first experience of, of any kind of um teaching and you know i went and had a, a session with sacri oromo when i was in when i was in birmingham and took him something and he very kindly chatted to me for an hour um and i went to speak to colin davis once but you know i've i've, I've I, i'm a bit of an imposter i've never sort of really studied conducting um properly just sort of hopefully gradually become slightly less bad at it um, <laughs> well as you yeah, know in, there are plenty in, plenty of people who've come on the podcast who haven't had lessons either um yeah and yeah, you know yeah. and there are plenty of also plenty of conductors out there who've had a million lessons with thousands of different people who just simply haven't made it because they haven't got what it is or what an orchestra wants or the some they've got a personality trait that upsets orchestras or it could be for any reason um yeah how qualified you are is irrelevant you know really the minute you you start opening your mouth and moving your arms around an orchestra wants your help and your input 
and your musicality, and it doesn't matter. They're not going to look at your CV. Um, yeah, that's completely, completely true. Um, but yeah, no, I, I went to, I went, I came to the the Royal Academy in London in two thousand and five to start a PhD because I knew actually that if I studied conducting, I'd never do any composing. Um, mm. So I thought I'd try and study composing and try and do some conducting on the side. And of course, I absolutely hated the course. Um, <laughs> and uh, after a matter of, you know, the sort of three months into a three year course, gave it up uh, and um, applied for the master's conducting course at the academy and got into the second round, but but didn't, uh, but didn't get a place. So I sort of thought, right, what do I do now? Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, as you say, 2007 um, sort of got together a bunch of players and that's that's now, uh, well, com- coming up to 15 years, which is which is amazing. Um, so we're sort of very lucky to um, those first couple of years when there was no um, <clears throat> no funding and no money for things, you know, people playing for free and then gradually starting to, you know, be asked by festivals and things to go and do some concerts uh for which there was some money or a lot of money and just gradually trying to build up build it up into what you know what's now a professional chamber orchestra and uh, and what sort of projects do the Covent Garden Symphonia do in a normal year you know pre-covid yeah uh, and, and, yeah. and how many would you try and do or is it just as it comes as it as it works out yeah I mean in so in those in those sort of um first years we you know we started doing a couple of concerts a year and we we sort of gradually worked our way through a Beethoven cycle uh and uh you know we did Berlioz Symphony Fantastique um and we did Sibelius 2 you know basically just things I wanted to do that mm. I thought people would enjoy playing and, and coming to and then of course once you start paying the musicians it becomes much more difficult to put on big things um and so actually what what we really were doing from uh, I guess sort of 2008-9 onwards really was doing lots of these arrangements that have only just become cool in the last two years you know, kind of, <laughs> uh, Mar- Marla Symphony is arranged by Ovenstein and yes. uh, all, all this kind of thing so we've done lots and lots of that sort of stuff lots of string or- orchestra repertoire so kind of John Adams Shaker Loops and you know Adams Chamber Symphonies that kind yeah. of thing Création du Monde. You know, just I mean, the really nice thing is we've got a, a kind of team of principal players and a really nice, but actually very regular kind of pool of of, of people on whom we can call. Um, so in the last couple of years now, I've been a bit busier doing other things. There have not been so many concerts, which I'm sad about. And of course, in 2020, I was thinking right now is really the time to to actually start doing a few more CGS concerts. Mm. Uh, But then, of course, we all know what happened next. Um, So, yeah, I'm sort of currently currently plotting, basically. Um, (laughs) But um, I think the the nice thing is that even though we don't see each other that often, um, I mean, the last thing was back in... Uh, back, back at the end of November when we did a, um, a recording for the BFI for a silent film which actually we're doing a live show of in a couple of weeks hopefully mm. um, you know we're not seeing each other for a few months but it just feels like you know getting getting back on a getting back in the saddle um, and we all know exactly where we are and how we play and I barely have to do anything because they they know what I'm going to say before I open my mouth <laughs> now uh, a few episodes ago I had the great pleasure of talking to Sir Roger Norrington who is the next big name to appear on your biography? You were assistant to Sir Roger Norrington for between 2011 and 2016. How did you first meet? Um, how did it all come about? And what was your role 
as his assistant? Well, um, as I um, never uh, tire of uh, reminding Roger, I basically discovered him because I found his recording of uh, the magic flute in a bargain bin in HMV. It was really <laughs> cheap, so I, so I, because I, so I bought it because I was learning it at the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I knew there was this guy called Roger Norrington, um, but I didn't really know who he was or kind of what he stood for. Yeah. I had since my very, very kind of first steps as a conductor been very interested in historical performance. I mean, as I said to you before, you know, my, my, my first things really were conducting contemporary pieces where it's just a given that you just follow all the instructions and you do what the composer asks of you. And that's yeah. just, you know, and one of the things that I'd found very frustrating as a trumpet player was why the conductors for whom I was uh, for whom I was playing were not also following those instructions in in later repertoire. Yes. Uh, sorry, in, in, early, in earlier repertoire, I mean, in yeah. earlier repertoire. Um, so for me, one of the really kind of central things about wanting to conduct was was trying to, you know, essentially be historically informed, I guess. And so I bought this, I bought Roger's CD of the Magic Flute, and it was like, for the first time, hearing hearing it how it was playing in my head how I wanted it to go in my mm. head and I was just I was genuinely sort of quite moved by this recording where you know all the andantes flowed all the things that were alla breve were alla breve you know all this yeah. kind of stuff and the sound and the vibrato as we know all this kind of thing um and so I found a way of getting in touch with him and he very kindly said I could come to his house so I went to his house and um found out what what his tipple of choice was so he took him a bottle of that and he said oh you're very informed um, <laughs> and um and we were supposed to meet for a couple of hours um and i stayed for the whole day and eventually his wife came in and said is ben staying for lunch and so i did yeah. and he basically sent sent me away with a with a whole load of um books to read and articles to read and i read them and he said you know open invitation to to attend any of his rehearsals so i started going to rehearsals that i could get to um, and after a couple of years, the opportunity to assist him came up and um, it basically just meant that I would sort of traipse around after him and, and hang out in his rehearsals and yeah. go and badger him and badger him and tell him um, what I thought he was doing wrong. But no, no <laughs> it was it was it was um, an amazing, amazing experience. And I learned so, so much from him. Uh, funnily enough, actually, not just about the historically informed side, but actually just about how to run rehearsals mm. uh, and actually also technically you know I think it's one of the things he's not often given credit for is his, his sort of extremely economical use of gesture extremely incisive decisive um, gestures and a really particularly his kind of party pieces you know the Beethoven symphonies and Symphony Fantastique and the Brahms you know these pieces that he's been doing for really decades he'll often rehearse without a score mm, um, mm. And, he, and he'll just say from this bit and sing the bit and then the orchestra kind of goes oh, and the concertmaster shouts, you know, <laughs> uh, shouts out the bar number and, and off they go. Um, but I think that's potentially why it was sometimes quite helpful for, for him to have an assistant um, to, to sort of gently occasionally remind him of, of bits of detail and things. But um, I learned a huge amount from him. And um, well, um, presumably it will come up in a minute. My my job in Darmstadt, I owe entirely to him, actually. Oh, and and how does how do you owe it to to Roger? Well, so basically, uh, so this the Deutsche Philharmonie Mark, which is my as I, where I've been chief conductor since September 2017. 
um, they were looking for a new chief conductor uh, sort of 18 months before that. Mm. And uh, one of Roger's uh, friends works in the marketing department. And right. um, she sent him a message and said, you know, who's the new Roger Norrington? And he said, oh, you should try yeah. this guy. Um, and so I just got a phone call from the intendant out of the blue while I was driving to a rehearsal. And he said, uh, you know, we've got your name from Roger Norrington. And I thought, Ooh. and yeah. they asked me to go and do a concert. Um, this will make you laugh. It, it was uh, the first concert I did. So this was in July 26, 2016. And it was uh, uh, the orchestra does a, a last night of the proms style concert every right. year, uh, out, outdoor thing. Uh, with 3,000 Germans singing Land of Hope and Glory in Jerusalem. And Stefan, my boss, said to me, yeah, do, do you think seven rehearsals will be enough? <laughs> um, and um, of course, you know, in the UK, uh, this, the, this type of concert is almost invariably done on one three-hour rehearsal on the exactly. day. Exactly, so yeah. The thought, the thought of having three hours was just, uh, sorry, of having, you know, seven times three hours was just hilarious. Yeah. Um, so, so, so that was that really. And I, and I, and I went and did the concert and it was, it was really nice. And I, I loved them and I think they didn't hate me. And I was asked back for, for another concert in March, 2017. And then I was lucky enough to, to get the job. So I sort of owe, owe that really entirely to Roger actually. I'm assuming um, because uh, we follow each other on social media or whatever else, because and I've seen the sort of programs you you do with uh, Deutsche Philharmonie, with Deutsche Philharmonie Merck. I'm assuming that uh, with your HIP background, um, which you you just explained was around before you met Sir Roger Norrington, but it's definitely was probably um, deepened and greatened by meeting him. Um, I'm assuming that you are quite hot on how you get the orchestra to sit um, and uh, all things like use of vibrato and uh, have you got them the trumpets playing natural trumpets and timpani on calf heads and all of that but going further on are they then allowed to use their their other instruments when you do you know 20th century stuff are they basically a malleable group of professionals who who can put on a different hat for a different repertoire that is absolutely one of the things that right from the beginning I've worked out really hard with the orchestra um, is getting this kind of flexibility. So in my mm. first season, we opened our my, my sort of first season as chief conductor with a Haydn symphony, uh, Karen Sampson singing the um, Exultate and Mahler IV. Mm. Uh, and then in the November, we did some... Uh, Brahms and Mendelssohn, Mendelssohn Reformation Symphony, and then in the January, what did we read? Corn Gold and Rachmaninoff, and you know, so on through the season. So the idea yeah. was to, uh, and I mean, I had already from from the beginning sort of been talking to them a little bit about sound and vibrato and things, but actually getting them to, it's not just about making an orchestra play without vibrato, but getting them to think about how they use it. Yes. So, you know, in Mahler we use a little bit, in Mendelssohn we use none, and for the entire week of Corn Gold and Rachmaninoff, I was badgering them to use more and more and more and more and more. <laughs> yes. um, so, but the lovely thing now is that it's a conversation that we have in every project um, w w without, and, and you know, it's just a given that there will be a discussion about it. And actually, if we're playing 
Haydn or Mozart or Beethoven, we, we don't even mention it. Yeah. Maybe if we have a couple of guests in, they someone will kind of just say, by the way, you do know, don't you? Mm. Um, but, you know, we, we, we do lots of kind of on the string bowings rather than all these kind of thrown spiccato strokes. Um, there's a lot of lot of talk about phrasing. Um, as you mentioned, we almost always sit with first violins left, second violins right, and the bass is in a row behind the woodwind, mm. um, or on the left behind the first violins if we have kind of fewer than four, I guess, uh, double basses. Um, and it's something they've been amazingly open to, mm. and I think are quite interested in. I'm very, very lucky that Matthias, our leader, is. Uh, very also interested in in that kind of historically informed side of things and he's been incredibly supportive um, and yeah I think I just try to make sure that we don't play too many projects back to back where let's say we're not using any vibrato but you know just just to kind of mix it up and and, and yeah it's it's a, it's a really exciting thing to be have to have an orchestra that actually wants to explore sound and 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 doesn't just switch it on like a kind of carpet it's really there yeah. as a decoration um, yeah. and that that's a really amazing thing for me that's great um it leads me on to the other thing that i would say that people know you for and it couldn't be i, I can't think of any anybody else who does this who has a, you know a real grasp and use a regular use of historically informed performance in one with one hat of their career and that the other one is doing uh, live music to film um and i can't think of it would be like trevor pinnock doing it or it would be like <laughs> doing it or you know people i've spoken to on, on this podcast you know how did that start i'm assuming it was a covent garden symphonia thing that that was the first time you did it, it, it but now you do it I would say, you know, I mean, your latest job literally a few weeks ago was to be appointed um, the chief conductor of the Babylon Orchestra in Berlin, which they're a silent, they do silent films. So, you know, that's, um, it's, I can't think of anybody else who does it. So how did it start? Uh, it was in 2013. I think I perhaps mentioned already with, with um, Covent Garden, we did uh, the Berlioz Messe Solennelle and the Symphony Fantastique in the Queen Elizabeth Hall. And I wrote to South Bank Centre afterwards and I said, look, we'd love to do another show in the QEH. So, you know, let us know if you have any um, any availability because, you know, the dates are always sort of quite difficult to, to come yes. by. Um, and a little while later, they got in touch and said, we've got a prime Saturday in December mm. in the QEH. Would you like to do some sort of family Christmas concert? And I thought, great, let's do the snowman. Yeah. And then I thought, right. <laughs> what do I do now then? Yes. So I got in touch. I got in touch with a, a brilliant colleague of mine called Mark Fitzgerald, who's got lots and lots of experience conducting live to picture. Yes. Uh, and he very kindly lent me a score of his and a DVD uh, of I think of Nosferatu, just to sort of have an idea of how he marked up his scores and sort of how he did it. Right. And and so I just sort of started really and. It was amazing, amazing fun doing the snowman. Um, and yeah, it's kind of addictive, actually. <laughs> or I found it addictive. Yeah. I found it terrifying, but I found it completely addictive. Agreed. And we did it the next, <laughs> yeah, because I know you've done it as well. Yes. Uh, we, we, did it, we did it the next year. And then uh, I rather foolishly thought it would be fun to do a Chaplin film. So we did The Gold Rush, hmm. uh, which is 90 minutes of basically pure Mickey Mousing, there's no uh, click track, there's no clock, there's no punches and streamers, you just have to take all your cues from the film. Visual cues, it took me yeah. about three, yeah, it took me about three months to learn it, 
Um, but it was one of the most exciting things I've ever done. Mm. And I was really, really hooked on it from then from then on. Um, and we then, we did Casablanca, we did Psycho, we did E.T. And I mean, it took, it took rather longer than I had hoped it would, but eventually other orchestras sort of gradually got to know that mm. I was a person who did that. Um, yeah. And suddenly, I guess in about kind of 2016, 17, my diary sort of, I suppose, sort of slightly blew up and I suddenly, you know, half, half my, half my work was doing, was doing film with orchestra concerts. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it all, you know, that was, it was 2017 that my job in Darmstadt began. So my, my life changed pretty, pretty rapidly in that, in that year, really. Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right that when I began doing films like a picture, my my first impression was this could not be more different from conducting a Haydn symphony. It's just the it's the it's, the, it's like com- completely different ends of the uh, ends of the of the conducting spectrum, right? And then as I got more into doing it, and syncing with the film became less of a challenge. I don't mean less of a challenge in that it becomes less difficult because mm-hmm. that's really the most difficult thing actually is is making making the music fit with the film and, and making it happen in a way that kind of feels organic so that the audience is just watching the film and then suddenly someone punches somebody on the screen and there's a yes. bang in the orchestra or whatever it is yeah um but the more experience i had doing that the less that became terrifying and it's something i mean i you know i don't think i'm in any sense a sort of great conductor but I'm I'm very very good at being absolutely always in the right place and making sure I hit all those sync points Mm. um and and as I was doing more and more of these films I actually realized that the thing I was caring much more about was trying to get the right sound trying to get the right articulations and really it became much closer to this kind of historically informed thing that I had always been really interested in. Mm. It just happened that I was doing, let's say, I don't know, Jurassic Park, which, you know, was a, a film score from 1993 rather than the Haydn Symphony from 1793. Um, and one of the big joys for me of doing these films is actually really trying to recreate as nerdily as possible exactly <laughs> what was on the original soundtrack um and of course it, it what's lovely about it is that you know we we could i'm sure probably sit down for an hour and have a uh, a rather heated discussion about uh performance practice in elgar or well maybe not let's say you know in in Bra- brahms or Vorjak or schumann or something like that but for pretty much all of the film soundtracks that have ever been made we have first-hand evidence of yes. how they actually sounded when they were mm. written mm. um and that i find deeply satisfying being able to uh you know work with an orchestra to make them sound like an orchestra from the 1920s or the 1940s or 30s or 60s or 80s or whatever it is mm. um and of course the challenge is always to to make sure that you're synchronized with the film but it's much more than that as well um, and yeah. I, it, I, I really, I really love both, you know, both doing classical concerts um, and conducting films. And I don't think I'd be without either, really. No. Well, there are two points to come out of that. Is that the first one is, I'm not surprised that you feel the historically informed performance element is attached to both because 
they both have rather partisan sort of audiences. You know, I, I've done John Williams concerts, and then you, you go online and you discover there's a John Williams fan forum, and they did give detailed reviews of your concerts and say, well, you know, he go, he it was exactly the right feeling and the right temper of this, and exactly the right temper of that. Why did he cut out the last three bars of the of Hedrick's <laughs> theme from Harry Potter? You know, all of these sort of things. Um, and so you you have people who are really have strong opinions about their film music and about their 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 you know exactly the same as it is with Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven and and however far back or forward you want to go with with that. Um, the second thing I would say is that lucky you for having done so many that you can now you can now worry less about the sinking. Um, mm. You know, I've done one film. Uh, I did North by Northwest. Um, I was there. I oh, you were there. Ah, oh, well, <laughs> yeah, well, I was just, I was just behind you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, fortunately, the orchestra weren't just behind me; they were just with me. <laughs> but it was, it was a cheesy joke, but I couldn't resist it. Um, and uh, and you know, there was one sink point I had to hit. Really had to hit. Most of them were dead easy. There was a car crash that was dead easy. There was one gunshot I had to hit, uh, and I stressed more about that gunshot than anything else about as much as I stress about the snowball hitting the window pane in the snowman, you know, but exactly. I've just done five of those in a row in, with the Trondheim Symphony Orchestra. It should have been eight, but you know, Norway changed the rules and I had to fly home early. By the fifth performance, I was not worrying at all about the snowball because I knew I was in the right place and I knew what I was doing. And I think it is that level of confidence of just doing it more often that you feel, you know, actually now, you know, and I felt I could shape things. And I knew that, you know, if I got half a bar out, I, I could pick it up in 25 bars time or whatever else that, you, you know, you could make a musical point of, of picking up the tempo to get it, the sync points right. Uh, but when you first do it, as you just said, it, it is exhilarating yet frightening because you just stress about the most bizarre of things. I, I found I stressed about it, you know. Um, I mean, my, for instance, my, my... sorry, the, for instance, the overture of North by Northwest or the, the opening titles, you know, it was not recorded to click. It was just Bernard Herman conducting in the studio in 1950, whatever it was. Through many, many, many goes uh, at home in my study here with the score and watching the, the punches and streamers on the film, I realised that they've rushed like hell early on, but then dragged like hell later on. So if I kept a steady tempo, I'd get about a bar behind the soundtrack, but I knew that there was nothing I had to hit particularly in the main titles, and I knew that eventually the original would come back to me, and it always did, you know. And and but so the, but those sort of things, you know, I lost sleep over thinking how am I how am I going to follow these these you know the, this wobbly rubato y score from the late fifties? Well, it turns out that you know um, it was very possible. Um, the, you know, the the tricky one was the gunshot, and um, sorry, I, I never hit it, <laughs> never hit it. <laughs> I, my my first my first feeling uh, when I first started conducting the film was it was it was a little bit like working with the worst soloist you've ever met. Um, <laughs> you know they 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 don't listen to you they don't mm. wait for you uh, they don't follow they just they just do what they just do keep going yeah yeah, and, yeah and they just keep going and the very very first time I remember the very very first time I rehearsed the snowman with my laptop there and it was just terrifying because you sort of in your heart of hearts thought maybe the film was just going somehow going to wait for you and it doesn't and of right. course what you learn is that you can do as much practice as you like at home mm. but actually how the orchestra responds to your gestures never comes out 
exactly as you maybe think it will mm. and that has been the really sort of big lesson is that i'm now hyper 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 aware of how an orchestra responds to my gestures mm. and it's one of the things i have to get to grips with when i meet a new orchestra and you know we're doing a beauty and the beast or a harry potter or or you know whatever it is in the first five minutes i've got to learn exactly where they play yeah um and i've got to adjust what i do to make them play where i need to and yes um you know if it's say a german orchestra and they play a little bit behind the beat but um as i do for one of the bond films or for beauty and the beast i have a click track i have a click track but they don't mm. um i sometimes have to conduct quite far ahead of the click to get them to sound with the click that's in my ear. Yes. So, yeah. you know, and, but, you know, again, that's just something that I sort of have got used to. But um, the, the sort of amazing thing really is that the films I've conducted a lot. So, you know, Raiders and Jaws and Jurassic Park and E.T. and well now Metropolis with this orchestra in Berlin that I've done sort of 13, 14 times in the last couple of months. Um, you actually, it sounds ridiculous to say it, but I have the feeling almost as if I'm sort of dancing with the film. I know exactly mm. how every cut happens. I know exactly how the music should interact. Um, and when you have a couple of performances in a row, you know, if you're doing a, you know, a, um, seven or eight shows, you know, in sort of it, 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 over a couple of weeks, you have a chance each night to think, okay, last night, I hit that, but I wonder actually if I move just a tiny bit more through this bar here, and that would give the opportunity for the orchestra not just to be together with that, with this thing that the sync point, but actually for the kind of bloom of the orchestra to be exactly with the cut. So that means I want to put my downbeat a little bit early, you know, just these very, very kind of nerdy things. Mm. Um, but it, what's nice about it is that it becomes then not just a kind of intellectual can I be in the right place but it becomes a really artistic thing mm. um, and I feel particularly with doing these long silent films like Metropolis where um, you know there's no no technology to help you and you have to take all your cues from the from the picture um, you can really do lots of sort of quite interesting shaping ebbing and flow things and also you know changing dynamics just kind of spontaneously with the orchestra because the orchestra has to be with you in every moment because yes. if you suddenly stretch out your third beat to catch something on the one they have to all catch that yeah yeah, um, yeah. and so it's it's something i really love doing and the more i do it the less i feel like it's sort of it's a sort of technical thing and more it's a, a you know a really sort of I, I hope artistic thing and and i mean certainly the thing that the other thing that i love about it is is you know usually we have amazing audiences for this because mm. it's not just like a classical concert where people uh, come because they like music you get people who come for the music but you also get people who love the films um and i remember doing the german premiere of um azkaban a couple of years ago and i don't think i've ever seen so many young people you know not, not like a kind of family or um family concert audience where it's sort of young kids but yeah. you know just t teenagers and people in their early 20s and mm everyone wearing kind of Harry Potter scarves and t-shirts and stuff. It's just a most, most amazing thing. One final question, which as a regular listener, you'll know is coming. Uh, it's about score prep and learning a score. Um, 
I wonder whether this is going to be a two-part answer um, because you know learning a score for a for a you know live to picture is probably very different from learning your Haydn symphonies. So how do you do it? Are you a inner ear person? Do you use a keyboard? Are you a scribbler, red, blue, and black? Um, or are you? I'm assuming you must be for for the film. But are, are you for a, a symphony concert? How do you go about learning a new score? You're absolutely right. Definitely a two-part answer. Um, I for all scores. We'll go through the first thing I'll do, and I will highlight in yellow any um, tempo markings, tempo modifications, rubato things. So anything, anything like that gets gets yellow highlighter. I used to do more of, and I now do less of, um, doing the kind of bracket of the strings in green. Mm. Um, I do still do it now, particularly when there's lots of Davisi, because it's quite. I have a sort of way of doing it so that I can see at a glance that it's all the violins who are divided into four or five staves here and then yeah. just viola, cello, bass, whatever. Yes. Um, and I know as other conductors have said on this podcast, part of it, it's sort of almost a bit like a ritual for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm learning the score, but it actually also means that I'm making myself go through every single page, everything, every single system um, I'm looking, I'm, I'm sort of absorbing and it's sort of that slightly worshipful act of doing that, that means that it's, that's my sort of first, my first kind of look through the piece, if you like. Mm. Um, if I'm lucky enough to have lots of time before the concert, you know, if it's months or, or years before, I'll get the score as soon as I can um, put those sort of first initial markings in. And then I'll usually read through a couple of times. Um, I won't use a piano. Um, I'll tend not to listen to recordings at that point. Um, and I'll just try to read it like a book and imagine it as best as I can and sort of make some decisions. I usually then put it away for a few months and come back to it. Um, and usually when I'm a sort of couple of months before the show, I might listen to a couple of other recordings a couple of recordings um, and it's at the point that the recordings start to annoy me that I know I'm ready to conduct the piece myself <laughs> because <laughs> no, I, it's not playing yeah. it's not playing how I'd like it to go in my yeah. head and I of agree. course sometimes yeah. one finds sometimes one finds a recording that you know you agree with entirely and that's that's lovely and it's useful um, but it's a it's it, it's it's a difficult thing isn't it um, yeah. I'm really adamant that I shouldn't be influenced by tradition. And uh, I'm, I think often orchestras are quite shocked when I sometimes don't do the usual things in the usual places. Mm. Um, and yeah, um, listening to recordings is, is, is interesting. But um, I mean, for instance, the pieces that I learned as a trumpet player I quite often have to study much, much, even though I know them and I know the structures and I sort of know them kind of by ear, I actually have to study much, much more intently because I really have to go back to actually what's printed and make myself see through what, what I think I know. You know, I think I know how this piece goes in my head and then I actually look and say, well, listen, this is actually not at all what's written in the metronome mark is this, you know, like first movement of Chike 5 is actually much faster than it's normally played, mm. Um, mm. for example, I don't know. Um, so, but in terms of marking up the score, so I don't really write very much. Um, I sometimes write in a little bit of shaping stuff, a couple of hairpins here and there. Um, I quite often put in bar structures. Those are very, very important to me and very helpful for me for sort of absorbing 
bigger bigger chunks. Um, but I don't I don't really write anything else uh, much. However, when I'm learning a film, yeah. um, well, let me put it this way. If in the case of a house fire, I'd save my family and then I'd go back for my silent film scores. Um, <laughs> I'd, 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 I'd let the, I'd let the, um, the hardback Mozart symphonies burn, but yeah. I, would go, I, would, I would go straight for my, straight for my Chaplin scores. At this point, Ben explained how he meticulously marks up his scores for film, especially his system for silent films and how that differs from his markings for a standard concert. If you want to hear that short discussion, I've turned it into a Patreon-exclusive bonus mini-episode. For as little as £5 a month, you can gain access to this mini-episode as well as all of the previous 15 mini-episodes. You'll also get a monthly bulletin podcast from me about my career as well as advanced news about this podcast. You also get an interview once a month with a prominent person from the classical music world who has dealings with conductors, as well as articles, essays and all sorts of other conducting-based content. The details of how to join are in the show notes below, and I'd love to see you subscribe to the Supporters Club of A Mic on the Podium very soon. Now, it's time for the 10 questions with my guest, Ben Palmer. Ben. As a regular listener, you'll know what's coming. It's the 10 questions. And it's what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Um, right. So this is a bit of a strange one. Um, well, actually, there are two things, really. One of the things, I'm sure someone else has said this. I don't know if they have. Um, but I love the sound of the oboe's tuning A. Um, I, it's always been a sound that I've sort of found quite moving. There's this sort of moment where... Um, you know, a, a bunch of people, everyone kind of comes in and handshakes and hugs and all this kind of thing. And suddenly this this A sounds and all of these people, it might be 10 people, it might be 100 people, suddenly kind of melt down into this unit. And I, mm. I, I don't think I've ever been more moved really than the first time I heard that after six months of COVID mm. when I got to mm. go, when I got to go to, to Darmstadt. And I remember hearing the oboe a and just feeling a little tear trickle down my cheeks anyway so that's that's my sort of um serious answer my slightly more stupid answer um is i really like um things that beep and drone and things you know so like lorries lorries reversing or you know if you i don't know if you go go into a bathroom somewhere and there's a you know the, the the fans humming on a particular note and i just i can never resist you know like i don't know doing some sort of thinking or whistling or humming some kind of polyrhythm against the against the against the beep or or you know singing singing some thing line against the drone i just i, I don't know it's it's um the sort of thing that drives my wife absolutely insane um so that th- those are those are noises that i like um and ironically uh, the noise that i hate is any kind of background music um Agreed. I, I just i can't i just can't deal with it at all um, I have earplugs, fitted earplugs that I carry with me everywhere. Um, and I, I just, you know, if I'm in a restaurant, if I'm in a cafe, I just, I can't bear it. Mm. Well, I agree about uh, Muzak or background music or whatever. I hate it as well. Though the, your choice, your first choice of the A sounding, I absolutely love, uh, especially, as you said, after COVID, it, it meant that, you know, meant that the world was was returning to whatever something for me also that sound is 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 a, is the sort of 
it's it's the alarm bell that means that I'm about 30 seconds away from walking onto the stage at the beginning of a concert. And for me, and I know this has come up in a previous podcast, um, it's, for me, the worst time is the five minutes before you go on. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm nervous then when I'm never normally nervous. And it, so the minute that A strikes up, you think, right, I'm only 30 seconds away from getting out there and the nerves going, uh, you know, the, and then it becoming exciting. And so it's a double-edged thing for me. It's not just the sound of, as you said, suddenly 85 people becoming a unit through the sound of one note. It also means to me that the excitement's about to begin, you know, and, and the nerves can go and then I can get out there and do it. So it's a sound I, I love as well. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? So... Um, I think I would, in an ideal world, I would just wake up when I wake up, you know, no alarms, no um, uh, three-year-old son, um, <laughs> just wake up um, as, as, as it happens, um, have a sort of delicious breakfast, I guess probably that, I don't know, would be made for me or something, but, you know, just like lots of nice pastries and some bacon and like delicious scrambled eggs and amazing coffee and things. And then I would take my uh my my three almost three and a half year old dinosaur obsessed son to the natural history museum um because he i still think doesn't have any concept of how enormous dinosaurs are (laughs) to see his face the moment he sees the t-rex yes um so we spend a couple of hours doing that and um you you've said you've said ideally away away from music one of the things i have found sad about uh, I suppose being being busier myself as a conductor is that I have very few opportunities to to go to concerts, mm. other people's concerts, and so my ideal thing would be to somehow uh, magically uh, go from my home in London to I don't know Vienna or New York or something with my wife, and we'd go and have a really nice date night dinner somewhere, um, and then go to an amazing concert with an amazing orchestra and an amazing program and, a, and an amazing conductor, and I think that would be a pretty amazing day really. It would be. Um, yeah, I mean, what I said, dear listener, I always send everybody I interview an email with the 10 questions on, because unlike Ben, many of the conductors don't know the podcast exists and don't listen to it, so they need to know what the questions are. I do normally specify, please don't talk about music or conducting in your 24 hours off, but actually going to a concert is different. Um, you know, we rarely go. I went to one recently. I was working in Cologne. Um, with the WDR Funkhouse Orchestra, and I went to watch the LPO under Ed Gardner at the Philharmonie one evening. It was a wonderful way to spend the evening. Uh, orchestra, I've conducted quite a lot, and it was nice to hear them from the other side. But, yeah, it was a great way of spending two and a half hours or whatever it was. And, yeah, I will allow it, very much allow it. <laughs> and I'm surprised, actually, I think, I think there's... Yeah, I'm surprised more people haven't chosen that as an option. Yeah, it's just it's, there's, there's something very, very different about listening to music uh literally just for the pleasure of listening rather than listening in a in a, in a kind of work capacity you know either because yeah. you're conducting or because you're uh you know assisting or whatever it is but actually when you're just there as an audience it's it's a completely different thing um and i i i, I really miss it <laughs> who would be a favorite conductor or conductors of yesteryear well this is a really interesting one because had i done this podcast interview a few months ago, I would have given a completely different answer. Mm. Um, but um, seeing as he has officially said that he is retiring from the concert platform, um, I'm going to say Roger Harrington. So he would have been my favourite current conductor, which I know is one of the 
um, forthcoming questions. Um, I've spoken already at, at length. What a what a hero I think he is. I mean, yeah. I, I'm I'm a I'm a huge fan of him as a as a musician and as a conductor. Um, and yeah, I, I I it makes me actually quite sad how um, aggressive some people are about his approach. Yeah. Um, you know, m- musicians and also re- reviewers and critics sometimes. Um, there seems to be this sort of uh, feeling that somehow musicians have a sort of God-given right, God-given right to vibrate, and anyone who stands in the way of that is somehow the devil incarnate. And he, he comes, he comes in for an awful lot of, uh, or has come in for a lot, an awful lot of um, vitriol from people about that. Um, but when you sort of think about the other uh, indulgences that other conductors take that in my opinion are much are much more extreme than you know asking an orchestra to play with less on vibrato. anyway I, I, it's uh, um so he's definitely one person um and uh, the other person is bernard heitink um who i just has you know conducted some of the most amazing live performances i've ever been to i remember going to watch him do a beethoven 2 with the lso which i think is on their lso live and you know, he, he, he sort of looked like he was barely moving just, you know, for most of the first movement, just these very, very small, very controlled movements. And, you know, the big chain of suspensions towards towards the end of the, yes. the first movement where the trumpets and horns sort of explode. Mm. Um, and he, he just turned to the trumpets and just sort of opened his shoulders and it was like a bomb going off. And it was, you know, it was the most incredible lesson in, you know, less is more. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's... Marla three with Elisa. I just, I just think he was, he was absolutely one of the greatest. So, um, yeah, Roger still very much with us, and for a long time, I hope. But um, I hope he won't mind being called a conductor of yesteryear because he's <laughs> officially retired. Well, um, it's a shame, but I, sadly, you know, it was likely uh, as a fact that it was going to happen that from you know episode one to now, uh, past episode one hundred, that somebody has gone from being somebody's favourite current conductor to somebody's favourite conductor of yesteryear. And that's a shame with Bernard Heiting and also Roger not, you know, deciding to call it a day. And don't you think that every art needs mavericks? Um, whether you think Roger's a maverick or not, but every art needs some, somebody who's going who's gonna to just, you know, change what, what everybody else is doing and think about it in a different way. And, and it, it creates discussion. It creates, you know, arguments. Sadly, as you said, it creates vitriol of some of the, some of the language that's used is, is, you know, bizarre that somebody could think that they can publish things like that. But I, you know, I think that the world needs people like that in everything. It needs it in sport. It needs it in um, politics sometimes. It, but it definitely needs it in art. And, and yeah, good. Absolutely. And I, I think I think the thing sometimes that perhaps we all forget is that um, you know even if a, a conductor conducts the most appalling uh, interpretation of of a piece, you know, goes completely against the composer's wishes speeds are all wrong you know change the instrumentation whatever the piece will still exist tomorrow it doesn't matter yeah. the piece the music will still be there um it, you know sort of the, the same way i feel about arrangements people, lots of people get their niggers in a twist about people making arrangements of of Mahler symphonies for 12 players no one's ever suggesting it should replace the original it's just no. some some it's just something interesting you know yes um yeah. so i'm you know sort of, you know very much sort of uh 
let, let live sort of person. Yeah. Well, let's see if there are any mavericks as your choice of question five, which is favourite current conductors or conductor. It's so hard, Mike. It's so I know. difficult. I know. <laughs> I know. There are there are so there are so many people whom I really admire, um, and I think you know. I mean, for instance, um, some of some of the best sort of twentieth century concerts I've ever heard have been with Esapeka Salonen yeah. in Philharmonia, mm. um, Pavel Yeviding, Beethoven's just pretty pretty unbeatable for me. I think. Uh, Francois Xavier Roth is amazing, you know, p- particularly loved his, his um, sort of period instrument, uh, early French and Russian stuff. Mm. Um, there are so many people, it's really kind of difficult to, to pin down. There's a, there's a guy called Ernst Fantil who um, does lots of film with orchestra concerts. So I think, you know, not particularly well known outside that world, but he's just absolutely amazing at it. He's yeah. absolutely, he's incredibly, he, he recorded the soundtrack for the artist. Um, right. okay. And, um, you know, he's just very, very small gestures, often doesn't use a baton, but he's sort of very, very commanding in a very quiet way. I just saw him once rehearsing in Lucerne. We had kind of shows on alternate days and quite sweetly came to each other's rehearsals and sat in the same <laughs> seat before we realised. Um, so you sort of watch the screen and watch the monitor. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he'd just be rehearsing and something wouldn't quite work and so he'd stop he'd say two words and then he'd just do it again and you know just um yeah so so many conductors out there to admire um i i I think it's really um it's it's always lovely to find conductors who are really sort of it you know that repertoire in which they can really shine Mm. um I, Mm. i think that's that's the sort of that's that's the big thing um what is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Um, I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to give two answers to this as well, if I may. Of course you um, may, yes. Thank you. Um, the, first, the first answer is, um, well, which is also a sort of double answer, so it's a sort of three answers now, sorry, um, <laughs> is Celia Seven and Marla Seven. Um, two, the two symphonies that I think I've sort of, sweated the most over in terms of just sitting at my desk trying to make them make sense in my head particularly the finale of Marla 7 which yeah. is just so enormous and you know, have these sort of uh the, these different tempi that have to sort of relate to each other and they have to be different enough but not so different that the whole thing comes unstuck and you somehow have to get to the end and feel as if it's all added up to something mm. which I suppose is is a way of describing the whole of Sibelius Seven as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think th- th- those are the two pieces. You know, technically, sort of not anything p- particularly tricky. I mean, I mean, the Mahler, of course, is hard, but um, it's it's just yeah, get, getting those to make sense in my head took me a really long time. Um, mm. So that's that's my sort of my first answer. Um, and the, the second part um, is um, I'm slightly blaming COVID for this. Um, is the, the Charlie Chaplin film Modern Times, which I was supposed right. to conduct in uh, March last year with Covent Symphonia. That was cancelled. Uh, it was supposed to be in December last year uh, with my new orchestra in Berlin, Babylon Orchestra Berlin. That was also cancelled. Um, and it's now ab- about to be rescheduled for some, for some time in 2022. Um, it is the hardest silent film to do, Modern Times. Um, it was recorded, the, the original soundtrack was uh, recorded by Alfred Newman, who wrote the you know the famous 20th Century Fox yes. yeah, fanfare, yeah. Um, and 
uh, it's a, it's a silent film which is only available to certain conductors. You have to be sort of authorized by the Chapman Estate to do it. And I've done Gold Rush a few times, so they they know me and they yeah. you know no no I'll take it seriously. But you have to sign a sort of contract, um, basically promising to to prepare the film properly. <laughs> um, and so now, uh, sort of about two and a half times, I've sat down to start learning Modern Times, and it is just absolutely absolutely insanely hard um because it sounds like this you know this there's a great sort of big big romantic themes and then all this very very fast factory music yeah, yeah. Um, where, where charlie chaplin sort of at the at the uh production line and he's he's uh you know with a spanner and someone's hitting a sort of thing in the ear around and each one of those has to be perfectly synchronized with the actions on screen mm. um so 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 but but both both times I've I've um, sort of got got part of the way through learning it, and then the shows get cancelled. Um, so it's it's the most so I ha- it's in a way cheating because I haven't actually conducted it. But I know when it comes round, um, it's going to cost me an awful lot of uh, weeks and weeks, if not months and months, to 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 really make sure that it's it's absolutely safe by the time I meet the orchestra. Well. You know, as somebody who's conducted so many silent films, if you can see on the paper before you've even conducted it, it's the hardest one you've ever done. It's obviously an allowable answer. Sibelius 7 is another one which I'm not sure how many times it's come up, not often, but it's got... It's like it's like orienteering or something like that. You know, you've got to know where the next waypoint is and how fast you've got to get there. Classical rallying, where everything's done on a stopwatch. You know, you know that the tempo you're at now has got to get to a different tempo in 150 or nine pages time. And if you get that wrong, well, that's going to affect what happens at that point. And it, yeah, it, to make it make sense and to and you're always always sort of fiddling in your mind have i gone too soon no i'm okay uh am i too fast that, no, that's, I'm okay. that's exactly yeah. i don't yeah. i don't i don't think there's any other piece that i know where the the tempo you take in the first bar has a bigger has a, has a bigger impact on on the way that the whole piece unfolds mm. you know start start your your starting tempo um you, you know it's like some kind of alternate universe thing if you take a different starting tempo <laughs> you will eventually end up in a different place at the end it's just it's, yes. it's absolutely mind mind frying yeah yeah when traveling abroad to conduct what item could you not leave home without well i know i'm expressly um there are a list of items i'm um, expressly forbidden from choosing mm. uh, one of which I, I believe is a suitcase i'm not allowed to mention so i'm hoping <laughs> that i may be allowed around that um, by mentioning, um, I have a a, a rucksack, um, yes. a special a special rucksack. It's called a riot bag. R I U T. I think it stands for something like uh, revolution in user thinking. Anyway, a riot okay. bag. Yeah. Um, and it is the only rucksack I've found that can hold A3 scores and batons uh, and you know laptop and iPad and water bottles, and it's got all the pockets are against your back. So it yes. sort of opens against your back. Um, and um, so in it, in and of itself, it's not really a thing I can't travel without, but it carries all of the things yeah. that, um, that, I, that, I have, that I have to take with me in my hand luggage. Yeah. Um, and um, it is the most, the most marvelous thing. I'm on, I'm on my third one, um, not, not actually because the, the first two have, uh, not because anything bad has happened to them because they're, they're, 
built incredibly, incredibly well, but just because the new one came out and I couldn't not have it. Mm. Um, but I think it's got a sort of 35 litre capacity, which means I can literally get, you know, four, four or five big A3 scores in and, and everything else I need. So, um, yeah. I wonder whether other conductors are obsessed with that luggage. Um, uh, for instance, I have a remover suitcase. Same which, here. Yeah. yeah, I've got a little one, another big one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I... I, I I looked at another company uh, to try and get a, a carry-on or a roll-on um, because I use a, a you know a, a wheelie bag as my kids call it uh, for all of my scores uh, and chargers and I I you know Max and all that sort of stuff and this one was beautiful and it was exactly what I wanted to do it had a charging thing but it was about a centimeter short of taking a, an A3 score so that was it that was it <laughs> deal deal breaker it, and if i yeah. can't get an A3 score in a bag well i, I ain't buying it um that's the end of end of argument so it's yeah. li- literally it's the only rucksack i found that um and also it's sort of a little bit like mary poppins's handbag it, it doesn't look that enormous so you sort of, <laughs> you know you, so, so, sometimes when um you know, if you sort of turn up at um, at the gate and they sort of look suspiciously at people wearing, you know, these huge backpack things and say, oh, that's not going to go in hand luggage. Um, it, it, it's, it looks much smaller than it is, but I've, yeah. I've not really managed to fill it yet. So, um. Number eight. What's the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Uh, there's the really obvious thing. Uh, I mean, I love traveling. I love flying, but the time it actually takes to travel and, you know, being away from your family, that's the sort of obvious thing. The thing um, that, I, that I wish we could change um, is as follows. As conductors, we get, I think, very often pigeonholed. Mm. Um, sometimes that's kind of by design sometimes it's sort of by accident um, I mean you know for a while I was the the Haydn historically informed guy and now I'm the kind of film with orchestra guy um, and I mean lots of the other conductors you've spoken to have you know sort of been pigeonholed in in some way you know whether it's as a ballet conductor or a conductor of show music or an opera conductor or whatever mm-hmm. and I suppose my my wish uh, would be that that we don't somehow that we're a bit kinder about the pigeonholes and that we don't treat them as a negative thing. Mm. Um, you know, people often say to me, you know, I've had sort of agents and people from auctions, oh, aren't you worried about, you know, being pigeonholed as the, uh, you know, the, the film guy? And, um, you know, my answer is always, well, you know, would I... Would I rather be conducting the Halle and the BBC orchestras and going to Montreal and Antwerp and wherever and conducting films, or, or would I rather not be doing those things? Um, <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, you, know you, you, often, you often hear people talking about film music as if it's something they've stepped in. Um, and I, I don't know. I just I feel, I feel as if pigeonholing doesn't need to be a bad thing. Mm. And I think also having people having been pigeonholed, we sometimes assume that they can't do anything else. And I, so I just, I just my, my wish, I suppose, would be that we'd just be a bit more generous with people um, about, you know, not, not just saying that person only does this sort of stuff or saying, isn't it fantastic that this person is a real specialist at doing this particular thing? Wouldn't it be interesting to see them do something else? Um, mm. And, you know, I think it also goes goes to uh, sort of training things. You know, I mean, as as discussed, I've never really sort of studied conducting. I, I spent my, my 10 years... Um, how would you put it, sort of 10 years in the trenches kind of conducting amateur orchestras and choral societies and mm. student orchestras. And I had a, had an absolutely amazing time doing that. And I mean, I know you work with 
some amateur orchestras that you yeah. absolutely adore and it's taught me everything I know and I'm mm. incredibly proud proud to have spent that time doing it but there are an awful lot of people who you know maybe look down on people who work with amateurs and I just think find that a bit sad because you know everybody has their own way to sort of getting to where they're going to end up and that might be in a pigeonhole it might not be I don't know I just um I, I, yeah. Well, you're you're talking <laughs> you're pre you're preaching to the converted because, as you know, I you know I've conducted amateur orchestras. Uh, I now still I now only conduct two, but you know that's because mm. I love working with both of them. I, you know, I used to sit there when I was playing and uh, still at the CBSO and conducting and thinking, I wonder how you'd get on with my amateur orchestra if you tried to fix that corner, or I wonder if you stood in front of my my amateur orchestra conducted like that, what sound would come out? Because I think the answer would be pretty horrendous for you you know sometimes you know um you maybe we should swap roles the other thing about pigeonholing i couldn't agree more with you uh, but i do think that by having you know you are very similar to me in the fact that you know there are orchestras in this country who think i'm the schools and family guy uh there are other orchestras i work with who think you know well actually he conducts contemporary music really well uh cbso basically give me anything and everything um and you know, whereas I, I go to other places, I'm the guy who conducts the film music concerts for them and presents them. You know, I don't mind being put in those pigeonholes if I go and work in those places and because I enjoy working there. But there is an extra level above that, which is there are some orchestras around the world, for instance, WDR Funkhouse in Cologne and the BBC Concert Orchestra, where actually it's a good thing to be to have conducted many, many in many different styles and in many different genres. They wouldn't worry about you because you've done film and you've done light music and you've done Broadway and you've done ink still wet contemporary fly you know fly shit squeaky gate you've done everything <laughs> and therefore they're happy they all come in because we want to play everything all in one concert and we've got somebody here who has done everything uh, and so therefore you know with the pigeonholing fine pigeonhole me all you like but i think it's good to it's it's yeah I, I i don't consider it to be a bad thing whereas some people do you know they really do uh so here here yeah, there we go. Number nine. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I think I said as a teenager, I would have wanted to be a cartoonist. The problem with that was I could never really decide what to draw. So maybe <laughs> I'd probably, I'd probably, um, it would be like my composing now, but probably even more frustrating. So I think um, if I couldn't be a musician, I would probably want to be some sort of writer or perhaps a photographer. Um, I really love writing. Um, I don't really know what some kind of journalism, maybe a novelist. I have no idea. But mm. and I really enjoy taking photos, even though it's something I know absolutely nothing about. Uh, but probably something, something along those lines. I think something creative, or a, or a, or a, or a pilot. But we all know conductors who have um, <laughs> um, taken that, taken that slightly more seriously. So I think yeah. that one's probably and, that answer. And you can taken. join, you can join the list of other conductors who've said pilot on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's yeah. getting nearer double figures than single figures there. Sure. And finally, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Right. So. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really like steak and we're talking steak that's, um, you know, so rare that a good vet could bring it back. Um, <laughs> and, and the thing I'm always sad about when I'm in a really nice steak restaurant um, is the Chateaubriand and it always says, you know, for two. Yeah. And so if this were really my last, my last meal on earth, 
I'd, I'd order the Chateaubriand for two, but just for me. Yeah. So I probably wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have a starter. Um, I just have this huge steak, you know, like a, a bucket of Bernays sauce, um, some really nice kind of slightly thin, thin cut fries. And, and I'd be very, very happy in some sort of vegetables, but basically loads of Bernays, loads of very, very, very blue steak mm. um, and fries. And I'd be very happy. And then if, the, and yeah, I suppose maybe some Rioja, um and and then i don't know i yeah i'm i i, I mean probably an apple crumble i just i don't <laughs> think there's anything there's, there's nothing i like more um so that that would that would probably be um that would probably be it i think really as long as the ratio of crumble to apple is is about 50 50 i'm with you <laughs> i com com completely agree completely agree and you know ice ice cream and custard and everything you know if it's the last one we're going all out um, oh. and, uh, and, a, and a really nice double espresso macchiato at the end. Very, very, very good choice. Ben, it's been a real joy chatting, as I knew it would be, and I hope in the very near future we can sit down and chat some more. It'll probably be about sinking to film, or um, it may even be about vibrato in Brahms. Who knows? But I'm, I'm, I know we'll enjoy chatting. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to, great to be on the podcast. Thanks, Mike. All the best. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with an American conductor who won the Sir George Schulte competition in 2004. Since then, he's held title positions in Switzerland, Germany, Norway and the Netherlands. And from 2023, he will be music director in two opera houses, in Valencia and in Berlin. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>